me and Andre, we've sparred countless rounds. Um, but yeah, man, just putting himself in line on my dream. So I got to fight for it. Simple as that. Once again, they have me as the underdog. I deserve to be at the top. Left hand there though from Aziz Cordin, then a right up the middle. Heavy, heavy leather from Andre Sterling. Ah, guys, welcome to the Beautiful Boxing Podcast. I have zero idea where to start with this one. I think you've got to address the elephant in the room. You know, we're in a period of national uncertainty. And what I mean by that is we don't know what this coronavirus outbreak means for all of us. And I'm talking about on a family level, you know, grandparents, people who are vulnerable and so forth. So the first thing I want to say to everyone is, May God keep you safe. May God keep you healthy in this time. That's the most important thing. We don't know how it's going to end. You like to feel that we're somewhere in the middle of the storm at the moment, and it's only going to get better from now on. And I think just collectively we should stick together and we should do what's in the best interest of the country. You know, as boxing fans, let's try and rise up and operate at a standard far higher than our own sport which feels no way to, to place us in harm's way. You know, I don't know how many shows there are in the UK at the moment. Maybe there are three, maybe there are four, plus the Olympic qualifier. And this is a time of national, you know, like I said, national uncertainty. And you're talking about events that have paramedics. So if there is the coronavirus moving around, because look, at the events we're talking about, the small hall shows, it's nans, it's aunties, it's uncles. It's the sort of people who might be vulnerable. It's the sort of people who might be carrying it. And if you pass this to the paramedics and they've got to go and work tomorrow and they're dealing with sick people on a daily basis, it creates all kinds of risk factors that seemingly every other sport understood and said maybe it's not a good idea for us to be creating situations where people congregate in high densities. Maybe that's not a good idea from the biggest sport in the world, football, all the way to, I know some you know, kids' football or netball events have been cancelled because it's like, well, this isn't the right time to do it. And that's the expression. This is not the right time to do it. Boxing promoters clearly don't care because it's a profit game for them. You know, Team GB and the EUBC clearly don't care because they've sunk so much money into this event at the Copper Box, they dare not reschedule. Financially, they can't cope. But these are selfish decisions that go against the collective interest, which we're used to as boxing fans. But it's sad that even in a time of crisis, it will be massaged and it will be spun in a way that says, we were doing it for the fans, we're doing it for the people. No, you weren't. You're putting people in harm's way. And people will say, oh, you, but you've got the choice to go or not go. But by the time you've bought a ticket, your propensity to go is greater than your propensity to not go. 
So I think this is a black eye to boxing, and it shows once again that it's a sport that doesn't know its ass from its elbow, and it's embarrassing. Because the analogy I use is, it's like the national anthem. As a nation, we understand what the national anthem means. Now, whether you're pro-British, anti-British, I don't care. When that anthem comes on, everyone shuts up. And they drown in their own thoughts. Remembrance Sunday, we drown in our own thoughts. But we respect the fact that the collective consciousness is towards respecting those institutions and doing what's best for the collective. And in this instance, the promoters have failed to do so. It's, it's sad to see, but it doesn't surprise me when it comes to boxing. And that's probably the saddest state of affairs of it all. But on a lighter note, how irrational has it been? Like, I literally went shopping today and all that was left in the toilet and paper towel aisle was literally about five boxes of man-sized tissues. And I was just thinking to myself, has political correctness gone that far that no one wants to buy man-sized tissues in case they get labelled as being part of the patriarchy? You know, all that mad... This is absolutely crazy. The things people will buy when the pressure's on. There was a guy that was carrying five or six chickens and he was saying to me, I don't know how long this crisis is going to last. And I just said, five or six chickens aren't going to make a difference if we're locked down for a year, my friend. You might have to eat your relatives. I don't think he took it too well, but, you know. But it is, like, so much coffee, so much fucking beer, so much everything apart from toilet paper and kitchen towels. And who the hell's going to flush kitchen towels down their toilet? So that's going to be our next crisis, the fact that our sewage system's completely blocked up. Yes, it's been absolutely crazy, like, on a... When I'm watching people behave, things has been absolutely crazy, but let's not let that detract from, you know, how serious it could be. So once again, I say, may all our friends, relatives, loved ones, those who are close to us, our fellow citizens even, may everyone just stay healthy and may everyone stay safe and hopefully we're over the worst of it. Um, I think one of the downsides of this whole thing is we might actually get Canelo v. Billy Joe. I know people are saying, yeah, this is a great fight. But when you really strip it down and you go, who's the most deserving person of a Canelo Alvarez fight? If you just pause for a second and let's, let's ignore weight classes because I think he's got championship rights in three different weight classes, right? No, you, you, look, at, you look at Big Charlo. He probably deserves a shot. Danny Jacobs has probably done enough to deserve a shot. Like, Jesus, even Gabriel Sardo deserves a shot more than Billy Joe Saunders. You know, Yard, maybe. They're so, they're, and I know someone's going to say name them, but there's so many more people who've done more to earn a shot at Canelo than Billy Joe Saunders, who's only got this by dint of the fact that he's affiliated to the same broadcaster. Not even the same promotional company, the same broadcaster. And so we pause and we go, okay, why do people believe this fight's competitive? My, my own hypothesis has been Billy Joe Saunders is the opponent that Billy Joe Saunders will never be able to defeat. Forget Canelo, forget Golovkin, forget God, forget the aliens and universes we don't know about. He could 50-50 against some of those guys, right? except for God. But Billy Joe Saunders will never defeat Billy Joe Saunders. I don't care what trainer he has with him. I don't care who he has with him. 
I don't care what asthma medication he takes. I don't care what he takes. Billy Joe will never be able to defeat Billy Joe. What do I base that on? Go back to 2008, the Olympics. It was set up for him and Demetrius Andre to meet in the final. That was really the, the structure of the bracket. Demetrius Andre had got rid of Keith Thurman in the Olympic qualifiers. Billy Joe had come from nowhere, literally nowhere. He was a... He was, a fe he was phenomenal as a junior, flipped into the senior straight away. Terry Edwards saw that he had something unique, put him in the squad. He could hang easily. What happened in the Olympics? Just went to absolute pieces. And there were stories. Now, everyone knows the Billy Joe stories. I uh, dare not put them out here in case I get sued. But Billy Joe contrived to ruin his own impression. And so when you say, why wasn't Billy Joe considered a blue chip signing? Because everyone knew that there was that dark side to him. I think he was a dad at the time of the Olympics as well. Bear this in mind. These are all things that come into it. He was a dad at the time of the Olympics as well. So you'd have thought that sort of thing would calm him down. And then you march through his career and you go, how many times has Billy Joe defeated Billy Joe? Made the rider fight harder than it needed to be. Eubank Jr. fight harder than it needed to be. The Andy Lee fight was harder than it needed to be. And then you pause and you go, since he's won that title, the fight we all talk about is Lemieux. I don't know if that's two years old. I don't know if that's one and a half years. I don't know how old that is, but that's a long time ago. You know, we've seen him in stinkers with like William Monroe Jr. We're not, once again, self-defeating. So when people say to me, Billy Joe's going to win this fight, I'm like, you've got to convince me based on something. And it's got to be something more than hope. Because if you look at what Canelo's done, since Billy Joe's been a pro. Let's go. Let's go with what people are saying. Wow. Billy Joe's a Southpaw. So was Lara. A far more technical, far more skilled Southpaw. Uh, well, you know, Canelo's got the skill. So did Cotto. So did Austin Trout. You know, even to an extent, so did Kovalev. He, Canelo's dealt with people in a way that they were meant to be dealt with. And he's done it from a young age. Where it seems Billy Joe has done everything to defeat himself. Canelo's conquered all of his demons. And he goes into that ring and he takes risks and he dares to be the best of his generation, which he is by a long way. Canelo is by far the best pound-for-pound -pound fighter there is. For no other reason than he's turned the pound-for-pound -pound theoretical into a pound-for-pound -pound real. If you think about what pound for pound is meant to represent, Canelo's done it. He's gone from 154 to 160 to 175 to 168. He's gone all through the weight classes and he's been the best guy there. That's, the, that's all there is to it. He's been a world champion in all those weight classes. He, he can't be argued. So Billy Joe versus Canelo is not a 50-50 fight. Do not believe what Hearn tells you. Do not believe what De La Hoya tells you. It is not a 50-50 fight because if Canelo shows up in shape, he will break Billy Joe Saunders down. He won't miss. Whatever people try to take, he will not miss. And this is when you find out how good Billy Joe is. And this is when you find out that that second half against Chris Eubank Jr. wasn't a fluke. Now, in my head, I don't want the fight to go ahead on May 2nd. It feels a bit too close to what's happening currently. And... You know, 
what kind of traction are you going to get when the media headlines are dominated by the coronavirus? But then you know what you know what's happening in the zone HQ, and they're basically saying if we don't hit May second, it's going to hurt us. Whichever week we choose, that's not May second. It's going to take fifty million off the gate, and that's all they care about. It's all boxing cares about, and this is a sad state of affairs that we're in. But on a lighter note, I just want to lighten the mood a bit. I think one of the things I am most excited about in boxing, and if I if I do have to go through the process of watching boxing at a time when I'd rather not. I'd rather there was a good news story. And I just think Caroline Dubois is as golden a story as you can imagine. How old is she now? 18, 19 years old? I think she's 18. This is like, she's never boxed as a senior before. And she's straight into an Olympic qualifier. But this young lady's been so good for so long. Like, she's been ready for this. Had she been old enough, you could have put her in in 2016 and she would have been competitive. And I, I genuinely think that we're getting our first, let me choose it carefully. We're getting our first legitimate female boxing superstar. And I mean that in terms of no drama, no issues, fights so elegantly that you can't help but watch her. She, she's boxing's equivalent of Simone Biles. You'll watch her and you'll just be impressed and you'll have no choice but to be impressed. And you'll see her as someone outside of women's boxing. You'll be just be impressed with her as an athlete. And that's how I look at it. And I put her in a different category to people like Lauren Price. Lauren Price does it on raw power. She's strong. She's tough. She taps into her background in a way that very few do. Same with Sandy Ryan. Sandy Ryan is strong. She's tough. She's technical. She's been in the system a long time. And you respect them as boxers. There's, there's some, but there's something about Caroline Dubois where you just watch her and go, I think you just get the sport in a way that no other female boxer does at the moment. Definitely not one from this country. So if you can, like, I can't remember the link. I think it's like the Olympic channel. And they'll be showing that live. You'll be able to get it on YouTube. Just get the Caroline Dubois fights. Also get the, I don't know if Sandy Ryan's boxing in this one. I hope she is. Sandy Ryan and Lauren Price as well. I'm more excited about the women qualifying this time than the men. Um, I think Karis Artingsol's in there as well. She was unlucky last year to lose to the Philippine lady, but I thought that was the right decision. Hopefully this time she can just see her way through and qualify. On the men's side, I just think you know, there, are two, there are two guys who in two and a half years' time we'll be talking about as being superstars, Pat McCormack being one of them and Ben Whitaker being another. The other guys are cool and they're good and they're talented, but those guys stand out. Um, you have to give Joby Clayton, who now works with Anthony Joshua, all the credit in the world for creating and Ben Whitaker, just a damn fine boxer. And then you've got to give the Berkeley system its due as well for creating Pat McCormack, who can seemingly do it everything. Pat McCormack is as close as we have to a Canelo. He can outmuscle you, he can outbox you, he'll outskill you, whatever it is you want to do. And he's probably as nailed on as we have for a medal in the Olympics, if they go ahead. But those two guys, so get behind the women by all means. For, from the men's perspective, it's those two guys. I think everyone else might find it a bit challenging to get through it. And if I remember correctly, and I know I'm going to get pulled up for this. I know you're listening, Jamie. I think everyone gets one shot to qualify. And if you don't qualify, you get pushed to the side and someone else comes through. 
And I think that's that's going to be the nervousness. You're going to get one shot to qualify. I think it's this one for the Europeans, and then the world event, which is going to be in Paris, second May bank holiday, roughly. And then that's when those who haven't made it will qualify. And so, as a trainer, the question I have is, do I want to qualify early or late? The risk you have now is, if you qualify now in March, you're not going to box it 100% because you don't want to get injured. You don't. Like, your natural instinct is, I need to get to the Olympics without getting hurt in sparring, without getting hurt in a fight. Do you take your foot off the accelerator? Maybe. I'll be interested to know when Boatsy and Lawrence Okoli qualified. I have a feeling that they qualified pretty late in the process, but I'd, I'd like that confirmed. Because I think if you qualify in that May event, you've been hungry from January till May. And then once you qualify, your downswing's a lot shorter. Whereas I think if you qualify early, and there are a lot of guys who have already qualified, I know a lot of the Australians qualified last week. You know, shouts out to Justin Honey. So if you look at it from that point, once you've qualified and you switch off, it's going to be very hard to then get that hunger back at the Olympics. And I think that's what tends to affect people. So that's going to be interesting, just watching the, the Olympic cycle, you know, develop and move on. And that, it's something I want to come on to at some point later on, but I think it's a bit too early now. Once we, once we know who's going to Tokyo, then I can do a more detailed breakdown of what we can expect. Look, it's a dead news week, so I want to just go back to some of the stories that have seemed to take momentum recently. And it's one of the ones my friend was talking to me about, big shout out to my friend Ty. And he was asking me about the, the Fury glove thing. And I'm caught in two minds because I've tried it. So I've tried to punch with my fist halfway down the glove. So my, with, with my fist in the glove area. And the thing people don't realize is there's a really nasty seam because essentially you're stitching two pieces of leather together. So there's a seam that does like a will arc around part of the, the finger area. So if you do hit something pretty hard, you get this seam digging into your fingers. And it's in the bit of the finger that's unprotected by a hand wrap. And it's really fucking annoying. So you wouldn't necessarily want to throw hooks that way because you hurt your hand in the long run you hurt your hand you probably you know you probably give your, yourself depressed fractures in your fingers doing that so then i looked in and went does it give you an advantage in terms of where you place your knuckles i don't think it does and i might be wrong on that and i know people said well look at the injury wilder got to the ear but it was deontay wilder's left ear if i remember correctly which means it would have been a right hand and no one's questioning whether fury's right hand was gloved up properly so then you go, okay, what advantage could it have given Fury? It, it might have just been a means of misdirection because what Fury was doing a lot of with his lead hand, he was using it to create openings. And sometimes in doing that, you need a bit of misdirection. So maybe he was just flicking the glove so he could get a bit of whip on it and it would move quicker than Wilder thought it would, which would surprise him, and then you can throw the right hand. There are all kinds of things, and... You know, if someone says it's underhand, my answer to that is I don't know. From what I can gather, there were cameras in the changing room for the whole fight. So someone's got the video footage of Fury getting his hands wrapped. Let's get that. Let's get that. You know, let's, let's go through the checklist, right? Fury gets his hands wrapped. 
and it's watched by someone from Wilder's camp. I can't remember who. I'm hoping it was Mark Breland and not that twat Jay Diaz because he'd let anything go. Then someone has to sign off on that from the Nevada State Athletic Commission, Athletic Commission right? Then they've got to choose the gloves, which is also done in the presence of Team Wilder. The gloves then have to get signed off by the same official. Once that happens, you cannot take, you cannot tamper with your gloves because there'll be discontinuities in the signature on the wraps. You'll be able to tell if someone's done something. So then my next question is, was Fury in a position to claw away at the glove lining? Have no idea. Is it possible that before the fight, you use your fingers to manipulate some of the padding so you can pull some of it away? I have no idea. I really don't. But we need to just get to that point. What happened with the gloves? Where are the gloves post-fight? Did the referee check? You'd like to feel the referee checked. But I don't think that happened. I genuinely don't think, you know, in the mayhem, I don't think it happened. I think people just got those gloves off and got them away. But that, I don't know if I want an investigation. I want an answer, though. I want an answer about what was wrong with that glove. Because you don't want to give them to the conspiracy theories, but the flapping doesn't make sense to me because I've never had that happen on a glove and I've never seen that happen before. And there have been allegations linked to Fury before around sparring gloves being tampered. And it's not just the, the video that was seen. I, I have it on good authority that other sparring partners have found those issues. So I'm not prepared to, to damn him yet. I'm going to say that questions need answering. And I don't know who's going to ask those questions because we, we don't have a very strong boxing media in terms of trying to find answers to this. So this is something we're going to kick over to the Americans. So another thing that's been circulating a lot is people basically shitting on the, the Fury Wilder pay-per-view numbers and, you know, people bitching and moaning about that. So, look, I don't know what the official numbers are. I don't think we'll ever find out. If we're being brutally honest, we won't. It's just the nature of the beast. And I think as a result of that, what you end up saying to yourself is, why does it matter? And it matters because people just want to shit on what was really an exceptional fight, an exceptional event and well built up. People are saying the break-even figure was 1.1 to 1.2 million. Now, I don't know what the retail price for it was. It was somewhere, somewhere close to $100. I refuse to believe $100 million was spent on Fury v. Wilder 2. I just don't think it was. If you look at what you're, what, what you're essentially saying is they spent... Like the GDP of a small country promoting a fight between two people who can sell it for themselves. People underestimate how much work Fury and Wilder put into selling that fight. If you look at most of the outlets it was on, they were controlled by the respective broadcasters, so Fox and ESPN. So there's no additional costs in that. It's, it's simply just time. You know? So when people say it needed to break even, it didn't really. ESPN pushed it so hard on their platform, the same way Sky do. Now, if there's a recharge, it's an, it's an internal recharge. You know, so that's not, that's not really an issue. And then I think from what I gather with American contracts, you get a guarantee and you get upside on the pay-per-views. So 
you're incentivized based on how much it sells. You're not given a fixed fee. And I don't believe for one second that they were. So all the people saying that it didn't do well, if it did 900,000, which is the number most people are, are focusing on, that's where the consensus is, about 900,000 to 950,000 is the consensus figure. Anything below that tends to be from pro matchroom sources and anything above that tends to be pro ESPN. So it's about 900, 950,000. Then you go, who's doing a million pay-per-view buys at that price point? Canelo doesn't. Canelo numbers, anything above 750 when he was on pay-per-view were considered good. On DAZN, he doesn't do those numbers. Just not even in terms of views, I don't think he does those numbers. And it's just a reflection that the boxing market post Mayweather is small. But even Mayweather, let's not forget Mayweather. If Mayweather did 2 million views, that was a big deal. Like financially, that was a, that was a bonanza. And that's Floyd. No one else was coming close to those numbers. Pacquiao wasn't touching two million. Even at his height, Pacquiao was doing, he was doing the numbers these guys are doing now. So just have a sense of perspective before you jump into these numbers. Because number one, none of us are really accountants anyway. And if you're so determined to, to make the pro-Joshua case, well, you don't need to do it that way. You know, Eddie Hearn doesn't know. Be absolutely clear, Eddie Hearn doesn't know. And the reason I say Hearn doesn't know is if he knows what their numbers are, they must know what his numbers are. Because then everyone's talking to everyone else, which is what he tries to allude to. But then when you challenge Hearn on his numbers, he'll tell you, no, 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 no one can possibly know what the numbers are. So I wish the discussion would move away from pay-per-view numbers and just accept that we need these big fights to happen no matter how many views they do we need these big fights to happen we need the kind of event that makes us stay up at five in the morning and without that the sport has nothing you know the negativity in boxing man it needs to stop because it's killing the sport i'll give you an example we're going through the london rounds of the abas at the moment this used to be the place where I could tell you with absolute certainty there are kids who were going to be golden. If you go back to 2016 when I did the New Age Boxing Podcast and I was mentioning names like Louis Lynn, Andre Sterling, Zach Chelly, uh, who else was around that time? Ben Whitaker, Jordan Reynolds might have been around as well. But these were legit names. I mean... These were names that you've gone on to see do great things. Daniel Dubois was meant to be in, but he pulled out at the time. These were names that went on to be something in the sport. Easily. And so when you look at the list of the guys in the Londons at the moment, there's no one that stands out like that. Experience levels are down, like the average number of bouts per contestant down. The number of contestants is down, like, there used to be a time you had to fight five times to get out of London. There are guys that are going to fight once to get out of London. We're almost like Cornwall and the Southwest Division now where you might get buys all the way through to the quarterfinals. The sport of boxing's dying. And if you're a fan that consumes what you see on TV, cool, but just understand that the sport of boxing's dying. People can't be asked with it anymore. Can't be asked with the criticisms. Sometimes it's just people are lazy. But people have realized it's a lot easier to be involved in boxing by just sitting online and slagging people off. No one wants to get involved. Not many people want to train anymore. 
and the people that do want to train, you mean they were doing Pilates classes at Fitness First for ages before they decided, ah, may as well do this boxing thing. I've got a pair of pads, why not? Eubank wasn't wrong when he said the sport's becoming full of PE teachers. We need to stop the negativity. We need to make boxing a sport people want to be part of. Or we're never going to get the quality. And all you're going to do is keep complaining. It doesn't make you any cleverer to, to do all this factionist, like Fury's the greatest ever. You know, the, the kind of petty tribalism, which only people with small brains really do. You know, think about it. A lot, a lot of people who listen to this, a lot of people on Twitter... You're bloody adults. You're adults. And you're behaving like children in a playground. All in the course of someone you've probably never met in your life, never sat down with, never seen in a gym. But you get to live your fantasies through them. They're your superheroes. I get that bit of it. But the negativity? Nah. It's got to stop. Because two, three years from now, there'll be no one there. Coogan would have moved on to videoing raves again. Eddie Hearn would just go on to become the next Mark McCormack, wherever that guy that set up IMG was. And everyone would just move on. So I'm saying to you guys, man, let's be positive about the sport because when it's good, it's really fucking good. And when it's bad, it's terrible. Because there's no reason for it to be terrible if you stick to what Eubanks Senior calls the warrior code. But just know the sport's in crisis and it needs all of its fans, all of its people to help resurrect it because we're in a bad space at the moment. And that means we've got to stand up when promoters are jerking us around. It means we've got to stand up when there's stuff on TV we don't want to pay for. Let's not pay for it and let's force them to make the fights happen. Sterling versus disease is a good point. That's a case in point right there. And there's a reason why I started with that as the intro, because I think Dan Aziz versus Andre Sterling is the kind of fight we need to see more of. Ideally, I'd like to have seen that for like a Commonwealth title or British title at some point, because I think it's worthy of that even now. I think it's worthy of that. But naturally, you've got the golden contract happening, so there's a bit of confusion at light heavyweight at the national level, because you've got... I'm trying to think, who is it? You've got Shakan Pitters fighting Chad Sugden for the belt, right? So that's going to be one champion there. You've got Craig Richards, who has an automatic right to fight the winner of that. Then you've got the guy that wins the golden contract. Then you've got the winner of Aziz versus Sterling. So you've got four or five guys in that mix who... You've got four or five guys in that mix who, for me, have arguable cases for being the number one British guy. You don't get that anywhere else. Like, light heavyweight in this country, if you're a boxing fan, you can just consume this because all of these guys can beat each other. Jose Burton might be head and shoulders above because he's quite difficult to beat. But the rest of these guys, it's all much of a muchness. And I'd like to see Jose Burton versus Shakan Pitters because I, I, I want to see someone who's got a similar height profile. So, this is the request I have for everyone. I don't care what else you do on the golden contract bill. I'm not going to judge you. Make sure you watch Aziz versus Sterling. If you're in London, get a ticket for it. Make your way down to York Hall. 
be there. Because it's rare that you get two guys fighting at that sort of level who have roughly the same amateur pedigree, same achievements. They live within walking distance of each other, I think, if I'm, if I'm correct on that. So make sure you do hit up Dan Aziz, hit up Andre Sterling, get those tickets because this is the kind of fight as boxing fans you ask for. A fight where you can't pick a winner between two prospects on their way up. This is what you asked for. This is what Lee Eaton gave you. I was gutted that he gave you such a good fight so early. But this is a fight you absolutely want to see. And if this fight doesn't float your boat, then you're not really a boxing fan because you don't understand what this is about. But on a side note, can we start making noise for Umar Sadiq versus Lerone Richards? Don't ask me where this has come from. It's irrelevant. I've just been sat there thinking super, super middleweight in this country is really light at the moment, right? So you've got Lerone at British level. You've got Zach Parker kind of there as well, but Zach's looking at world honors really. And then you're looking at Daryl Williams on his way back but he's still not quite there. Lennox Clark gave a good account of himself, but he's had his opportunity. So who's next? Zach Chelly's had a loss, so he can't come straight back into it. So now you're there going, I think it's just Tommy Langford and Umar Sadiq, and I don't think we're going to see Langford again. So why not put Umar in with Lerone Richards? It's a London bout. It's, it's an interesting one, I think. I think the fans would love that one. Because you've got, you got the guy in Uma who's got all the momentum and you got in Lerone Richards, a guy who needs to cement himself at British level, in my opinion, before he kicks on to world honours. I think Uma's got the character, the charisma and the, the mental approach to, to help sell this fight. So, and then you've got Sam Jones on the other side who's also able to talk. So why not? And if anyone else has got a better opponent from, I'd be impressed to know who, but I would like to see that fight. So let's start banging the drum for that fight. And the sooner the better, as far as I'm concerned. Because I think that would be a massive step up. And, you know, they're the sort of things I always press Umar about. Like, just stop waiting. Don't, don't hang around. Don't waste time. Just shoot for the stars and see where you end up. And that's kind of where, you know, kind of my head is domestically right now. It's just around that generation of guys. Because four years later, and all the guys I've mentioned were the guys doing the ABAs in 2016. Now they're at that point where the British honours are coming for them. So let's see what happens with that. And then, obviously, the week after that, we'll have the return of Isaac Chamberlain, which is interesting. I think he's got a new setup over in Miami. I've seen him in pictures with Glenn Johnson. Like, if ever there was a man you wanted to learn from in terms of career longevity, toughness, skill, the ability to break people down round after round, Glenn Johnson. Hall of Fame CV. If you measure Hall of Fame by who you've faced in your life and what they've gone on to do, Glenn Johnson's up there and he's managed to beat Hall of Famers. So you can't really front on the guy. So no, no, God bless him. But will these fights happen? I don't know. Promoters just seem to be too greedy. But no, Sadiq versus Lerone Richards. Yeah, I like the sound of that. But look, that's a good, that's a Saturday ramble for me. Um, hopefully this helps cover some of your time, you know, that would have been taken up by Super Sunday and all that sort of good stuff. But it's just nothing sport-wise to get our teeth into, so I just thought I'd throw something out there. And look, actually on the side note, what do I need to touch on? Ooh. 
So everyone knows the uh, Project Highfield's up and running in terms of trying to find a venue. I mean, that's Terry objective number one. It, it's been an interesting run. I've spoken to a couple of property developers in terms of disused buildings that they have. Well, not disused, but they can't get planning permission. But, you know, they're offering like 12-month tenancies, which doesn't work for a boxing club. You need at least three years. So the search continues, but it's going to happen. There's been a lot of positive traction. You know, the message coming back is, look, when you've got yourself established, we're more than happy to sponsor. Like, we, we will definitely put money in, but the building thing at the moment is, is pretty political. So we, we just don't want to put ourselves in a position where we find ourselves trapped. So I understand that. So no, the quest goes on, but I promise you, the day we get a venue and get it kitted out, I guarantee you at least seven world champions. What sort of time frame? 10, 11 years? World champions, not winning vacant belts, taking belts off champions. That's my guarantee. So yeah, we just keep pressing with that. You know, Actually, I don't even care what country it's in. We'll do it in Cuba if we have to. But the important thing is, there's no point in being a critic of the situation without trying to change it or trying to move the discussion forward. And that's what I've always tried to do. Right, guys, I'm going to shoot off and eat my dinner, whatever that is. You know, I've been slow cooking some chicken thighs and then I ran out of ideas. So, uh, chicken again. Take care. Speak to you soon.